You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.aynrand.org. Hello and welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the online publication of the Ayn Rand Institute. We break down complex events and issues shaping our world in these times of crisis from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. So uh, we are broadcasting today on Zoom, as well as on social media channels like Facebook and YouTube. I want to start out uh, by mentioning that uh, you can find out more about New Ideal by going to our website at newideal.einrand.org. But in particular, if you are watching us on YouTube or on uh, Facebook, and if you'd like to be able to participate in today's conversation, uh, you should you should instead consider joining us on Zoom. Uh, I've put information up on the screen here, uh, letting you know how you can do that. Uh, you can uh, join us uh, by going to zoom.us slash join and then plugging in the meeting ID 812-506-718. That's where we will be looking at uh, your comments and your questions. Uh, if we have time, we'll try to in- integrate as many of those as we possibly can. Um, in a moment, I'm going to be joined uh, by my colleague uh, at the Ayn Rand Institute, Ankar Gatte. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow uh, here at the Institute. And in the coming weeks, the main focus of a New Idea Live will be analyzing issues and ideas uh, arising from the current COVID-19 pandemic. Today's topic under that heading is seeing through misinformation during uh, the pandemic. Uh, The reason that we're talking about this is because, well, in any kind of crisis situation, misinformation spreads quickly and widely. Uh, Today's pandemic is current, is certainly no exception. Problems bad enough when rumors spread among citizens, it's worse when gatekeepers of information fail to do their jobs. And so we're gonna be talking about how those of us who are neither journalists nor specialists in the relevant fields can assess claims that are being made about fields like medicine and economics uh, by by journalists. How can we do this while still valuing what journalists and other specialists have to contribute to human knowledge? And how can philosophy guide us in making these kinds of assessments? So uh, Ankar, are you out there? Yeah, can you see me? Yeah, uh, let me just uh, stop my screen share. There you are. Hi. Hi. Thanks for thanks for joining us today. Uh, yeah, it's good. This is, um, as I said, this is a uh, this is a new format that we're using. We've uh, temporarily put our well, we've put our uh, previous philosophy for living on Earth format on hiatus. Uh, certainly, weeks going forward, we're going to be talking about uh, issues arising from the pandemic. And Ankar, I I wanted to talk about this issue today because. Already in the last few weeks, I've seen just all kinds of misinformation circulating in social media. Uh, some of the claims have been particularly crazy. I don't even think they're worth analyzing. There's, there's the idea that the 
The virus was engineered as a bioweapon by the Chinese. There are people who are tearing down cell phone towers because they think 5G radiation is somehow contributing to the, uh, to the, to the pandemic. Um, but I thought it would be interesting instead to take a look at some examples that are being taken seriously by, by various mainstream mm -hmm. media figures. Uh, and often the reason they're being taken seriously is because when you dig deep enough, you'll see there are important elements of truth uh, in these stories, but the journalists often aren't presenting the facts in a responsible or objective way. And as a result, the audience takes these stories and they run with them wherever they like. And that can be very dangerous, uh, both for our health and for our wealth uh, in, a, in a situation like this. Um, yeah, I wonder if you, before I say anything more, if you want to say anything about the, the values that you think are at stake when we as non-specialists and non-journalists are uh, trying to figure out what's going on uh, in, in the world with these kinds of stories. Well, here, in this case, the values are off, obviously huge, I think, because it's both at an individual level of people thinking about like what, how do you get this? How do you contract this? What kind of exposure? What kind of social distancing? And when it was still voluntary, like what should I be doing and why? What is the evidence for the different scenarios that are painted? Um, so there's obviously at the individual level, but once it starts being mandated in part or full that we're going to shut down large gatherings, gatherings over 100, gatherings over 10, then everyone's going to be told to shelter at home. You have to really take seriously what evidence is being offered by the government and other officials for these very, very drastic measures. And you have to really demand that they are thinking about what the actual evidence is and that they're presenting it to you as a uh, non-specialist in a way that you can digest and make sense of. And in this kind of case, I think it's important because um, we're going to take some things about journalism going wrong. I think in a crisis, it's worth um, emphasizing that it's hard. I mean, so this is a fast moving target with a ton of data and information coming out um, day by day, really hour by hour. And that it's part of why everybody's glued to their you know, either social media or internet and so on. So that it's, um, so it, a journalist's job is hard in this context. And, but it's really in this context, you have to be doubly critical. And I think journalists should be doubly critical as well because it's so fast moving. Um, you, you have to separate out what the anecdote from the actual data is. And you have to ask a lot of questions about where this data came from and to think about the biases that might be inherent in the data, even though in a sense it is numbers. Um, so there's a lot of things to be thinking about and there's a lot, of, a lot at stake. Yeah, so I, mean, I think it goes without saying that, that reporters, and not just reporters, but lots of people are going to be making mistakes. Uh, but the, the test is really, well, what do they do when they find out they've made a mistake? Do they correct their error? Do they write a new column explaining why they think this was an important error? Uh, and you know, in some cases, they do. And in some cases, they don't. And I often see that as an important uh, way of judging someone's objectivity and, and, and honesty. Um, and it's especially important, I think, to be objective about the data that we're getting right now, because it's the failure 
to be objective about the data and the failure to be honest about it is that's really gotten us into this situation in the first place. And um, Mary Aline in the, in the chat on Zoom uh, mentions that you know we haven't been told the truth about testing, uh, that testing could have been used much sooner for isolation and contact tracking. And it's, I mean, there's a real scandal about why it wasn't, and it's, a, it's itself a complicated situation, but because it wasn't, and there was definitely probably some political motives involved in that, nobody knew who had it. There was no way of, uh, of containing it or isolating it. We could have avoided the large scale problem that we have now if we had been more honest about, uh, about the need to do testing. And even there, there's the issue that you brought up of what did they do in the face of the the, I mean, they're really fiascos, it seems like, in regard to the testing. Did they just openly say, yeah, we've screwed this up. We don't have enough tests. Um, and I think it's part of what's generating these lockdowns because they don't know what's going on. So it, in a certain way, it seems like the safest policy is the most dramatic lockdown. But even that would be better if they said it as, like, we're doing this because we don't know what's going on. And that's because we didn't have testing and we weren't ready with that. It would be a lot easier to swallow. Then you're wondering, like, what are, why are they doing this? And what do they think the evidence is for what they're doing? And I, I want to also, I want to reiterate something you said before, which is that it's hard to figure out what's going on. And that's especially because of the fact that we're talking about uh, a, what's basically a, a medical health crisis. And medicine is a specialized field. And not all of us are doctors. Doctors study for years, sometimes decades, to get to the position of being experts in their fields in the way they are. Uh, it's not something that you can just uh, concoct home remedies for, use folk wisdom to solve. Uh, it's a very complicated thing, a virus, let alone uh, testing for it or finding a vaccine uh, or even a cure for it. Uh, and, and so when journalists and when the consumers of journalism are reading about this, it's crucially important that, that they remember that learning things in medicine, as in all areas of science, is a highly specialized field. It takes work to achieve and accomplish and acquire knowledge in this field. Not just any old Yahoo is, is, is qualified to acquire that knowledge. So I wanted to talk about two examples today where I think this is the common problem, where there are people who don't have adequate appreciation for the specialized nature of the knowledge in question, who are making claims about it or misrepresenting it, and that's causing problems. Let me just say another word about the specialist, uh, what you were saying there is a comment, Beth, as put, like even in medicine, like medicine is a very broad category. There's all subspecialties and who studies viruses, for instance, and even in viral diseases, who are the people who studied um, when there were new viruses that came on the scene? Because uh, so I've read some of the people or read, read interviews of some of the people who were on the front lines during the AIDS epidemic. And so this is a new thing. And they often learn like, there are common missteps you can make with new things. Think some drug is going to be great. And then what turns out, no, it's not that effective. Um, there were doctors who treated SARS-1. And so even within medicine, there's people who have real specialty in regard to what is going on now. 
And there's doctors who obviously know more than you and I, but aren't nearly at the level of a specialty in regard to this. Right. And then there's, there's areas of special, specialization that are outside of medicine uh, that are also relevant to assessing what's going on and how and to know how to respond. Edward in the chat points out doctors are not economists or philosophers. And that, that bears on uh, the second example, I think, that we're going to talk about today. So I, I do want to talk about two examples. One is a medical example, and the other one is one basically about economics. And uh, I've chosen these examples because I think uh, this is a this problem is something that is that neither side of our political culture is immune from. Uh, both of the major political camps, representatives in the media, have have both been misrepresenting the data and misrepresenting the science or misrepresenting other specialized kinds of knowledge. Uh, so let's start with an example from medicine where uh, the, the media, uh, where the reporters that I want to take issue with are mostly on the conservative or the right end of the political spectrum, as they call it. Uh, and this is the controversy over a drug called uh, hydroxychloroquine. And I am not a doctor, so what I know about this controversy is limited to a lot of news articles that I've read over the last week and a few specialized papers that I've read and also conversations that I've had with doctors. But uh, just to give some background, this is a drug that is typically used to treat malaria. And because of things that have been discovered about the drug in lab experiments, there's at least some reason theoretically to think that it could work against the uh, COVID-19 virus. Uh, and there's been at least some anecdotal evidence to suggest that it has a positive effect on treating patients. But here it's really important that the evidence we have is for the most part only anecdotal. It is certainly not, not decisive and it is not most of it is not the gold standard of uh, medical uh, evidence, which is a randomized uh, control clinical trial. Um, there's been one study that I, I've seen uh, that came out in just the last week or so from uh, some doctors in China who actually did do a control uh, study in Wuhan. Uh, but as I understand it, it's a very small sample size, something like, uh, I think it was 60 patients. Um, the, all of the patients were relatively younger and healthier to begin with. They didn't have the underlying conditions that are known to aggravate uh, COVID-19. And so there's a big question about how representative the sample was, uh, because these are patients who probably would have gotten better anyway. And so especially when you have such a small uh, data set to begin with, there's, there's a real question of whether that's... Um, statistically significant. And most importantly, there are known side effects to this drug, uh, which can be very damaging to, to people who would otherwise stand a chance of recovering on their own. On top of that, uh, we know that there are other people with other uh, autoimmune diseases for which this drug is a known treatment. It's a proven treatment. And they're unable to get their hands on the drugs now, or in many cases, they're unable or having a harder time getting their hands on the drugs because of people wanting to use it uh, 
in an unproven way to treat uh, the coronavirus. So if, and, go ahead. I mean, there I think it's worth saying, it's, it, if the more this is touted as sort of a miracle kind of thing, that's when you get the run on it. If it was, there might, there's a little bit of evidence that this might be helpful. And so it's not people are gonna be stockpiling this. Um, and that's when people with, I think it's lupus is one of the things that it treats, yes. it's a known treatment for. It's, yeah, these people are going to the pharmacy, their stories, and they can't get the drug because there's been a run on it. So that's part of the issue. Um, I think it's worth also saying something about the anecdotal, the, 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 the thinking about anecdotal evidence, and particularly in this context, when you read the stories, it sounds like this drug is being used fairly often in treatment, sometimes in combination with an antibiotic, and sometimes I think also with zinc, it's being used. And it's much more likely you're going to see the stories of the one doctor who says, the anecdotally, like, this seems to really be helping my patients, versus the 10 doctors who, yeah, this doesn't seem to be making any difference, so I'm not paying much attention to this. So the, the anecdotal, there's almost always a bias in it. It's you're going to hear when the people say, oh, this was a great, and you won't hear the people who've tried it, and it, it, may, it doesn't seem to do anything, or maybe even have detrimental. Yeah, and and for for the studies, for the studies that there are suggesting some positive effect, there are a bunch of other studies out there published saying no, we didn't find uh, any any positive effect at all. So even just picking the studies that speak in its favor is already a, a kind of sampling bias. And yeah, I mean, if 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 all we were talking about here was the fact that well we're not certain that this drug works and you know try it if you like see what happens it's up to you uh, that would be fine but as you suggest the problem is when there's a run on the drug uh, and other people then who we know need it can't get to it and and I and that's been happening in large part because of the way it has this drug has been touted in the conservative media and and by President Trump uh, there's a uh, Fox News in particular has been touting it constantly. If you go to the, the website, the media watchdog site, Media Matters, which is a which is a left wing liberal site, uh, for the sake of full disclosure, they've done it. They did a good compilation of all a number of the different uh, claims being made by various uh, Fox uh, anchors, which which the constant din of it really makes it seem like this is a miracle drug, and the uh, the elites and the government are trying to cover up that it works, uh, which plays to the kind of anti-elite bias that you see uh, in the audience of networks like this. And they've reported a lot of the anecdotal success stories, for sure, but they're not talking about the side effects. They're not talking about the fact that other people need the drug. And even while the, uh, even while I think the journalists are at least making some effort to hedge their language. They're saying, well, I'm not a doctor, but this looks like something we should look at or you know, something we should at least try. Their audience isn't quite as nuanced, and especially when the audience doesn't hear the stories about the side effects of the other people who need the drug, uh, they, they will take that and they will run with it. And I think they have been. I mean, I've, I've seen people on social media who've really been running with this, uh, who've, who've, now they're posting about it all the time and talking about it like it's a miracle drug. So, I mean, I think the important point to make here is, I, I mean, I'm, especially since I am not a doctor, 
I am not saying that we don't know that the drug works. I'm certainly not saying that people shouldn't be free to try it if they can somehow get their hands on it. Uh, and I think there are a lot of interesting conversations we could have about the role of the FDA in, in, in preventing people from trying drugs that even when they don't know they work, they, you know, if they're about to die, it, you know, what is there to lose? Um, but it's often not the case that people are about to die. Uh, it's often the case that they, they could likely uh, survive on their own or recover. And so the main point is that the way this drug is being reported about, the way that it's being presented, uh, especially in the conservative media, I think is irresponsible and non-objective. And those of us who are non-specialists who are reading about this and listening to the media need to realize that this is, this is a, a perfect example of a case where you need to have specialists' knowledge in order to be able to assess uh, something like the efficacy of a drug. And uh, you need to be able to assess whether uh, it's worth taking it given all the other options and given the side effects. And you need to know, well, you know, someone, who, someone else who really needs this drug not being able to get it because of that. Um, and the, I mean, part of the point here is what one should be trying to do. And I mean, we were talking earlier about the stakes involved. I mean, one of the things one would have to think about is if you test positive for COVID-19 or for the coronavirus, uh, would you consider taking this or not? And what you're trying to find out is really what is the state of the evidence for this? And it's, it, as we talked about, it's difficult in a time of a crisis, but there's a fair amount known. And there's, um, I mean, this drug has been used. So one of the things I've read is that, so there's patients already taking this drug for other reasons. And is there evidence that it's, then there, there's either susceptibility to the coronavirus or the severity of their symptoms, is less because they've already been taking it. And I mean, some of the doctors I've read say, no, it doesn't seem like it is. But you're trying to really figure out what the state of the evidence is. And I think, so you, you've been talking about it a bit as this is sort of this in the conservative media. I think on this issue more than anywhere else, um, you should try to get out of your bubble. You should actively be thinking about let me try to find people who are making a counter argument to this or who are, who are suggesting, no, this is being played up way too much, um, that the evidence is, is less than it's thought in regard to this. It's, I mean, I've, on all the things that I'm reading, I always try to find who's the person who argues against this, the, the article I'm reading or the expert that I'm reading who thinks, no, this expert's getting something wrong. And I think in this case, you really have to do that. Um, so in this case, in particular, in regard to thinking about taking a drug, but in more general, in regard to the pandemic, it's, I will not take any one or two sources, even if they're expert sources as definitive in regard to this. And it's, um, I mean, I think in general in thinking, particularly philosophical thinking, you have to think, what are the best counter arguments against this view, this position? But same in regard to this kind of thing. What are the counter arguments? And actively seek them out. Um, uh, and that often means getting out of sort of the, the, the things that you normally frequent or read. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, stuff coming in through the chat. 
asking about, well, what about these doctors who are using the drug? And what about uh, the various doctor hospitals that are using it and the, and the re reports that they're making about success? I mean, these are all very good questions to ask. And again, my point is not we shouldn't be using the drug. My point is, for those of us who are not doctors, how are we going to interpret that information? Uh, there are plenty of doctors who are looking at that information and saying, well, this is interesting, but it is not definitive and it's not something that's going to guide uh, our decisions yet. I mean, there are I, doctors I know right now who are, who are treating COVID patients and they're using this drug but they're using it under very specific protocols. They're using it only under certain conditions where they know it's least likely to have the most detrimental side effects. Uh, and when they think there aren't better options available for the patient. And I mean, I have no problem with that whatsoever. They're doing it on, they're doing this again on the basis of their specialized expertise. Uh, but that's something that they know how to do because of their specialized expertise. Uh, most, you know, if there are, Doctors in the chat room who, uh, who think I'm misrepresenting anything about this conversation, I'd, I'd love to hear it and I will gladly stand corrected, but my, my assessment is most of these, my guess is that at least most of these people aren't doctors. Um, and the, I mean, the, the related point is then, how should this be reported? Um, and it's, there's a real danger you have to think about as a reporter. Am I giving false hope to people? And am I sending them down that like I can reasonably expect what they're going to go do is try to go to the pharmacy and get the drug and there's going to be a run on this stuff. So you have to really think of how you're presenting the evidence. And even you said they sometimes hedge, I'm not a doctor. So you have to think when you're presenting this, how to even present that kind of thing. I think for many of it, the stories that I read, that has to be the lead. So that this is a very small study. It's probably not statistically significant, da, da, but this is what happened. Not here's what happened. And then sort of at the footnote at the end, well, this might not be statistically significant because you're, what you're setting someone up for is very different, I think, in that case versus leading with, um, it's not clear this is even evidence for the efficacy of this treatment. Yeah, there's a, there's a question that came in from Marie, which I think is worth uh, answering. She, she asks, this is really a medical issue, so why are you spending a ton of time discussing it? Doctors should have the final say. I did not expect to have this conversation aired by either one of you. How about you move on to something you know a little more about? Well, uh, part of my whole point here is to make the point that we don't know a lot about this and to make the point that I think a lot of people in our audience don't know a lot about this. The problem is not with the drug. I don't know about the drug. The problem is the way the drug is being talked about, the way it's being processed in people's decision making. And uh, Edward in the chat says there's an argument from authority being made here, but it's not a fallacy to point out that some people are specialists and therefore you, if you know that they're a specialist, you have good reason to think that they know more about a topic than you do. Uh, that is essential to living in a civilized society where we have a division of labor, both in regards to uh, goods and service, but also in regards to knowledge. Some people are better at producing some kinds of knowledge than others. Uh, and we have to recognize our place in that division of labor. Um, and it, it's worth saying too that it, 
to think of it. Yeah, so we're not medical professionals, as we've said, um, but you're a consumer. So it, it's in effect, we're putting ourselves in the shoes of a consumer, which we, a consumer of which we are. If either of us test positive for this, you have to think about what kinds of treatments you would ask your doctor about um, and why. And for that, it has to be like, what was the actual evidence that you think that you found for this treatment? And it's there's nothing special about COVID-19. It's This happens when, when for any kind of medical treatment, if you have any kind of problem that's not easily diagnosed, you have to figure out who you think has expertise in this, what kind of treatment plan they're, uh, they're recommending, what kind of evidence they think there is for this treatment plan, what they know about side effects. You have to do all this as a consumer. And, and, and in a sense, the reporter is a consumer as well. They're not an expert in this. And, so. and this is part of what the value that they provide is that they're helping process this kind of thing and not just um, blindly or too quickly reporting on things and hoping that this will be great. So I'm going to sort of present it as it will be great. So you want objectivity on their part as well. There's a few things that have come in through the chat saying, well, what about how the the left-wing media is reporting on this? Have they been as objective and as responsible? And and I think that's a, there's a, that's a good question because I think that uh, because that side of the media has a kind of, uh, tends to have a knee-jerk response to anything that comes out on the right, they're also too dismissive uh, of this drug and they're not looking to see what kind of actual evidence there is to support it. And they're kind of, many of them are on the premise, well, we just shouldn't ever use it. Uh, and doctors shouldn't even be able to be free to prescribe it. Uh, so there's, I think there's errors on both sides of the commentary of this issue, which is something we'll bring out uh, in the second example that we are about to take a look at. Um, Ankar, did you want to say any any final words about this first example? Um, no, no, I think what covers good. Okay, so especially because I want to try to emphasize that there is uh, neither side of the political spectrum, neither, especially in the media, has any kind of monopoly on objectivity. I specifically wanted to pick another example where I think the same basic kinds of mistakes are being made on the other side. Uh, and this is an example uh, regarding economics. Uh, so there, a week or so ago, uh, President Trump, uh, after he was, I think, beginning to recognize the scale uh, of the threat posed by the coronavirus. Uh, put out a tweet saying, well, whatever we do in response to it, the cure can't be far worse than the disease. And he was talking in the context of the calls for national mandatory lockdowns, where basically all non-essential businesses are being shut down. And there were a number of other Republican governors who echoed uh, that same kind of skepticism about that uh, governmental approach. Now, I should say, I do think there is a proper role for government in dealing with uh, a, with a pandemic. There is a proper government power to quarantine and cordon, uh, which, is, which derives from the function of government uh, to protect individual rights. People who, are, uh, who threaten uh, to infect others with diseases are threatening the rights of other people. Um, that said, I think there's still a lot of questions that 
one can reasonably and legitimately ask about what the scope, the proper scope of the government quarantine power should be in particular circumstances, and that includes in this case. So, uh, of course, in Trump's case, Trump had previously been dismissive of the very threat posed by the disease and only late in the game started to acknowledge that it was a serious problem and that something needed to be done about it. And so the fact that he is now expressing skepticism about the national lockdowns uh, was itself dismissed. Uh, it didn't have a lot of credibility to begin with coming from him. But what you then started to see was a series of commentary coming from the kind of left-leaning liberal media, uh, which dismissed the very idea that we should be thinking about the economic consequences of some of these national, very uh, widespread mandatory lockdown policies. Uh, so for example, there was a New York Times editorial on March 30th, which explicitly called for the national uh, economy to be shut down. And in order to comment on those who were questioning the economic effects of this, uh, argued that, no, you don't really have to choose between saving lives and saving the economy. And the evidence that they offered in support of this argument consisted in a study that they cited, which I've seen now a number of other uh, columnists cite, by a number of Federal Reserve economists who had done a study of uh, various government responses to the 1918 influenza epidemic. Now, I went ahead and I read this paper in its entirety. And it's a very interesting paper. Um, but one of the most interesting things about it, well, I should say, first of all, what it finds is that there is some correlation between uh, the uh, how early governments imposed various forms of quarantine cordon in the run of the 1918 pandemic and the uh, rapidity with which the local economies rebounded. And it suggests the earlier that they shut things down, the better the economies rebounded. Uh, and, and they measure that in terms of uh, 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 when manufacturing concerns reopened. I can't remember if they actually used economic growth measures, but the most important thing though about the study is that when you look closely at the kinds of policies that it's reporting on, these were basically municipal policies, including school, theater, church closures, public gathering and funeral bans, quarantine of suspected cases and restricted business hours. We're not talking about a nationwide, not even a statewide closure of all so-called non-essential businesses. And this is not something that is mentioned in any of the articles that I've seen uh, reporting about this study. They simply talk about a correlation between various kinds of quarantine and economic effects. Now there's even, I think, a whole second conversation you could have about whether the correlations there establish causation, but even just leaving that aside, the fact that they don't mention the difference between the kinds of policies that they're proposing and advocating for and the ones that these economists actually study uh, is really revealing. And I think it shows that they're not, uh, they're not being objective or responsible in their reporting about these studies.
Uh, there's more examples of this too, but I want to see if you wanted to jump in on this. Yeah, and you put it as if you read the paper carefully, but it really is if you read the paper, you don't have to read it that carefully to get that what they're talking about is not a, a statewide, let alone, as you said, a na nationwide shutdown. So it, when you see that kind of thing, it's part of the evidence that what was happening is they disagree with what Trump's tweet, and they want to shoot down the idea, and they're just fishing for some study that will supposedly back this up. They're not actually thinking about the issue. They're looking for what they want to find and then think, oh, this study is what I needed, so I'll reference this to shoot down the idea. And that's not real thinking. Um, it's certainly, if you're trying to figure out what's true, it's not real thinking, but it's not real journalism either. Um, that a journalist, the, the, the citing of sources is not sort of just um, to make, to dot the T's and, I mean, dot the I's and cross the T's, like I have to have sources. So you should really think seriously, what does this actual study say and so on? And they're not doing that. And as you say, the fact that it gets repeated, that no journalist could look at this and say, look, this doesn't actually um, it's not evidence for what you're arguing and for what you're claiming is that's when you think, OK, there's a real bias here. Yeah. And, and uh, to the point that you don't have to be an economist. I mean, that paper contains you know, pretty sophisticated uh, economic uh, statistical regression uh, analysis. I'm not in a position again to analyze. That's why I only said you can raise questions about whether this correlation establishes causation. But yeah, you don't need to be an economist to know that there's a difference between limited local lockdowns and the kind of comprehensive national mandatory lockdowns that are now being discussed. And I should mention, by the way, that the 1918 Spanish flu was way worse uh, than, than what we're facing right now in terms of mortality and infectiousness. I've been reading a book about this. I mean, it's just shocking how terrible it was. Uh, and... Uh, that, but we, did, we didn't do anything like what's being talked about now uh, against it, or at least not at the level. There are a couple of other examples uh, that, uh, that I've noticed in the media doing similar things. Uh, there was another uh, Washington Post article, or there, there was a Washington Post article, an op-ed by someone named Christopher Ingraham, also on March 30th. Three of these things came out on March 30th, interestingly, and it was right after the Trump tweets. Yeah where the headline said, moderate social distancing yields $8 trillion in economic benefits, study finds. Now, the beginning of the article, again, starts by talking about all the people who are questioning the national lockdowns, all the people who are wondering whether we should be considering the economic effects. I mean, keep in mind, this, last time I checked, there something like 10 million unemployment claims. And if you've seen the graph uh, of unemployment claims in the last week compared to say during the last recession, 2008, 2009, you know, 2008, 2009, it goes up like this. And then on this graph, it's like that. So this is an unprecedented, sudden unemployment shock. And if you're not wondering, are there gonna be really terrible economic consequences down the road because of this, I think you're not asking the right questions. But what this article then goes on to do is to cite 
a study that, in that indeed does talk about moderate social distancing. It talks about voluntary kinds of isolation and tracing. And uh, so again, not talking about the national uh, mandatory widespread lockdown that, that, that people are asking questions about. Uh, I should also mention that the, the methodology that, that they use to calculate this $8 trillion figure is, uh, by my lights, as a non-economist at least, highly questionable. And I don't think you need to be an economist to ask these kinds of questions because they don't calculate the actual, the actual uh, output of the people whose lives may be lost. What they do is they use a kind of hypothetical figure where if you wanted to reduce a chance of death by a certain percentage, how much would you be willing to spend? And then multiply that so that it's 100%. And it turns out each person would be willing to spend $10 million. And then you multiply that by the number of people who might be saved, and you get $8 trillion. That's, those are very oversimplified assumptions. I mean, if you don't have $10 million to spend on your life in the first place to save it, then it's not that we're going to save that money, uh, let alone that other people would want to spend that money to save your life, which is what we're really talking about here. Um, and then one last example uh, of, of another one of these studies, there was, there was a, uh, another Washington Post op-ed by Catherine Rample on March 30th, where she's, again, in response to the people who are asking questions about the economic consequences, says, and here I'm quoting her, there's near unanimity among economists that the best way to limit economic damage would be to listen to public health experts' advice about how to limit infections, including the continued dramatic social distancing measures. And this is again in the context of commenting on the people who are questioning the national lockdowns. When you look at the actual data she presents, the studies that she presents, there's nothing like evidence of near unanimity among economists. She talks about a University of Chicago group that surveyed 44 economists. She doesn't mention how many economists they actually surveyed. She just says 80% of the economists they surveyed agreed that we should do really dramatic social distancing. Uh, but 80% of 44 is a pretty small number. And there is no further evidence in the piece offered to support the claim that there's near unanimity among economists. So uh, there's other things we could say about those pieces. I'm working on a, an article about this topic right now, which I hope will come out uh, on New Ideal in the next few weeks. But uh, to me, it was really eye-opening because what I did in each of these cases was to read the actual studies that the journalists are reporting about and to match the claims that the journalists are making with the claims that, that the actual economists are making. And you know, there's, I'm sure, all kinds of questions that economists could debate about the merits of these studies, but if you just look at them on their face value, they're not studies of the kind of uh, national economic lockdown that we're, that we're now talking about. Um, and th this is, I think, in, in the world of the internet, and social media, there's an easy way to think if someone provides links, now here's a link to the study and that that, oh, okay, so they must have really read this and processed this and they're giving me the references and I can even read the references. It happens 
way too often, for, at least I find, and I mean, this is an example, it's happening a lot in this case, when you actually read the studies, they don't show anything like what they're being used as evidence for. And it, um, reporting is a difficult job. I mean, it's a real job. It takes real skill. So, so it's not like the default is to get this right. And then it's, you have to be some kind of nefarious character to get it wrong. It's hard to get it right. Um, but it's part of the reason to really, um, to scrutinize these things. And I don't think of it as, it's too broad, I think, to think the Wall Street Journal is good and the New York Times is bad. So you have to think about the actual reporters and what, what you've read of them and what their track record is of what you've investigated. I find people in, in, from NPR to New York Times to Wall Street Journal, things that are good in them and that I pay attention to, and many things that I think are um, really shoddy reporting. And, but you, to, to, if, for, and for anything that's important to figure out, it's, you have to do some of this work um, if you're going to rely on the conclusions and they're important in your life and in your reasoning. And even something like, I mean, to take a more philosophical issue that it's, it's, it's would be harder for a reporter to raise, but even they could raise questions about it. The cure can't be worse than the disease. You're taking that from a context in which it's applicable to a context that it's not obviously applicable in the same kind of way. You're thinking of an individual person. I mean, what we were talking about in regard to thinking about taking a drug. You often have to think, I've got this condition and uh, there's a drug that can treat it. It has side effects. Are the side effects worse than if I've got allergies and there's allergy medication, but it makes me super drowsy? Is, that, is the cure worse, worse than the disease? That comes up all the time for an individual in thinking about issues about his health and medical treatments. How do you go from that to an economy as a whole? It's not an organism. There's not one person running it. Um, it's not the government running it that has to decide, okay, I'm the organism and is this cure worse than the disease? And so, like, so how does this analogy apply? It, it, I, mean, I, it's, I would argue it's highly collectivistic because it puts all the individuals with their different lives and though, as though it's, well, you're all just part of this one organism, call it the economy or call it the nation and whatnot. And then we have, we're prescribing things for it and we're deciding is the cure worse than the disease. Um, but there is no such perspective, I think, in the end. And a reporter could at least ask the question, okay, like we're taking this from one context and applying it to the other. Does it really apply? And they might not have an answer and so on, but giving readers you know, you might want to think about this. Does, this. does this analogy, is it a good analogy or not? Um, and the stories were way too much. What they want to justify is the continuous lockdown and so on. And that that's the whole vein. And they're not thinking in a very individualistic way. Um, but that too, a reporter can do, even if they're not a philosopher. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, I should mention I gave a talk at Ocon at the Objectivist Conference uh, a few years ago called Being Objective About the News. You can look that up on YouTube. I give what I think are some pretty sensible practical tips on how to interpret the stories that you're reading, how to uh, analyze their reliability. And I do it coming from the perspective of the objectivist 
views about knowledge, the objectivist epistemology, the idea that it takes work to know things and that therefore you need to know that uh, the, the testimony of others that you're uh, consuming needs to be assessed. You need to know that they know what they're talking about, that they have a source that is itself reliable. And you need to know that the claim that they're making integrates with uh, the rest of their knowledge and the rest of your knowledge. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think we wanted to talk about this issue today, because there is a philosophic, there's a very important philosophic dimension to understanding and assessing uh, the media and journalism. And it, it comes from the perspective of epistemology, which is a branch of philosophy, which is about figuring out how we know what we know. And not everything that anybody tells you is true, uh, very far from it. And there needs to be very rigorous standards, uh, especially when you're coming from an individualistic perspective, that you need to be able to uh, find evidence of other people's reliability if you're going to listen to what they have to say. Um, there was somebody who, uh, a couple people in the chat who asked what book I was reading about the, inf uh, about the Spanish flu. And I think I will mention it because I th there's a couple of things, I haven't finished reading it yet, but there's some valuable things about it. It's a book called The Great Influenza by John M. Barry. Uh, and he is himself uh, an infectious disease expert uh, and uh, expert on the history of that flu. And he actually had a, op-ed that came out maybe a few weeks ago uh, talking about the current pandemic and how everyone has come to him looking for advice on how to think about it given his historical knowledge. And I didn't agree with everything that he said in the op-ed, uh, but one thing that I definitely agreed with was that he said the greatest lesson that we can take uh, from the 1918 flu is the importance of telling the truth because it was again a reluctance to tell the truth uh, on an even greater scale than we're dealing with now about the 1918 flu that made it so catastrophic. Uh, and part of the reason it's called the Spanish flu uh, is because Spain was the only country in the world that wasn't censoring its newspapers at the time uh, and the only place you could read reports about the outbreak of this flu. And so everybody uh, figured it must have come from Spain. Actually, it came from Kansas. Uh, and it came from Kansas because this was right during World War I. And uh, we, we had, there were, there were army camps, training camps in Kansas that then spread it all over the world with a shipment of troops. And nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to admit it. Uh, there are stories about uh, in Philadelphia, they had a major parade uh, the two or three days before a major outbreak of, of the disease. And the doctors were saying, don't have this parade. You're gonna cause the disease to spread. And the mayor didn't wanna listen until it was too late. Uh, and there are a lot of other stories like that uh, in the book. Um, so I haven't finished reading the whole thing, but a lot of, I think, lessons probably from the history uh, to be drawn from that for the, the questions we're talking about today. So Ankar, we're, we wanted to keep this to about 45 minutes. Was there any, anything I mean, else? Maybe we, as a last question, a few people have brought up the issue of right to try mm -hmm. um, in, in connection uh, with the first um, example we were talking about in regard to to the coverage of, of supposed or the coverage that presents things like miracle drugs. Um, but it's, yeah, nothing we should have, nothing we've said should be taken to imply that there's not a right to try and that it's not, so this, 
the issue what we've been talking about is thinking about the evidence for um, treatments and and again putting it as a more from the perspective of you as a consumer of thinking of what the actual evidence is what you would look at what you um, and that you would want to really question assumptions question anecdotes and so on. if you're seriously take, thinking about taking a drug in regard in response to the pandemic but that it's not an issue of what is the government's role here um, and a, we the reason we need right to try is because there's so much regulation about the development of drugs, the approval of drugs, the prescription of drugs, certainly in the US, but in many, many countries, um, there's a ton of regulation in regard to this. So that then you need special permission, like right to try is sort of a special permission to be able to try experimental drugs and so on, because you're normally prohibited from doing that. And it's not that, that it's not the government uh, should not have a power to tell you what drugs you can and can't take. But that that you would be free to take it is not the same as it's just rational to pop any pill because you've read a story about this sounds like it will do something promising or something like that. It's you still, I mean, with freedom, there's more responsibility to really think through um, what the actual evidence is and what your standing is in terms of processing that evidence. Like, what do I actually know and not know? And some of it might be, well, there's some evidence, but I'm not certain about it, but given my conditions. So there's, it, it's a complicated judgment for an individual, and it should be the individual's judgment. But that, even if you're free to do it, you can do it rationally, you can do it irrationally. I think it's interesting, Ankar, that once we started talking about the hydroxychloroquine case and expressing skepticism about the way that the story has been treated, the chat room just lit up with all kinds of people saying, what, so you don't think that we have the right to try? But that's exactly the kind of false alternative thinking that a lot of people in the media have been engaging in. Right. Uh, well, tr you know, Trump is Trump is wrong about all kinds of things. Therefore, he must be wrong about uh, also about uh, the economic consequences of the lockdown. It's really important, especially in a situation like this, to take a step back, take a breath, and think about whether the person is saying what you think they're saying. Does it have all the implications that you're saying it has? So we should wrap things up. Uh, and there's a couple of polls for those of you who are in Zoom that uh, I, at least there's one poll that I want to share with you. For those of you who are joining us, uh, this is of course a poll. This is a, this is a, a webinar run by the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, we are attempting to pr promote and apply Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism to analyzing the events of the day, looking to see what kind of familiarity people uh, out there have. And there was a second poll that I was hoping we were going to be able to use. I'm not sure if it's going to be up there. I only saw the standard poll. Yeah, I don't see it either. Um, I but I'll let this one run uh, for a little while anyway. And I'm going to end it just, just to see if the other one comes up. Uh, but it doesn't look like it's there. So sorry about that. But uh, in any case, we are going to continue our coverage of uh, this ongoing pandemic crisis, uh, attempt to bring uh, some philosophic tools and perspective to the events of the day, 
in a way that many of the kinds of media commentators we've been talking about recently, unfortunately, have not been doing. Uh, we're also going to be moving to twice weekly format starting next week. This series, New Ideal Live, will be on both Mondays and Wednesdays um, for the time being at the same time, that is 11 Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern. We may change that time of day going forward once we get more data about what time works best for everybody. Uh, but for the time being, stay tuned for that. And uh, I just want to thank uh, all of you for coming to listen to us today. And I hope you got something valuable from our analysis. And I hope you also uh, take a look at our publication, New Ideal, which is at newideal.einrand.org uh, to find out more about future episodes of this series and other offerings of the Ayn Rand Institute. So thanks very much. Thanks, Ankar, for joining us today. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership. <laughs>